Last week, this is the second part of a two-part mini-series in the Gospel of Luke. So last week, if you uh, missed it, we were considering free-range Jesus from Luke chapter 4. Free-range Jesus. Jesus is God's anointed son going to God's people to proclaim to them good news, liberty, sight to the blind, and the year of the Lord's favor. Free-range Jesus is going to the outcast. He's going to the brokenhearted, to the down and out, and he is giving them a good message from God, just as God's prophets did before him. Well, this week in Luke's gospel, we're now uh, looking at Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse uh, 37, and the uh, title for the message tonight is Straight Talking Jesus. Straight Talking Jesus. So look with me at Luke chapter 11, beginning with verse 37, again on page 870 in the Bible in front of you. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him, so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers, also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers! For you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things 
lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us as we look at this passage together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege that we have of opening the word and reading it together. Thank you for the privilege I have of of speaking. Lord, we pray that you would clear our minds of distractions, open our hearts to your word, and change our lives forever. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, notice in the Gospel of Luke that religious leaders are some of Jesus' biggest opponents. That was true back then, and it is true today. Now, the Pharisees and the lawyers actually represent two different kinds of opponents. Pharisees are more like what we would call today a denomination. They were gathered together based around common belief. But the word lawyers here in the text actually describes an occupation. One commentator helpfully said that you can think of the lawyers as seminary professors. And Jesus faults them both. Now let's set the scene. He's an invited guest at a meal, verse 37. But his host isn't particularly pleased with Jesus' behavior, verse 38. The Pharisee, that is the Pharisee who's invited him to dinner, was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. Now, let's be clear. Jesus hasn't come to dinner covered in dung. He's not filthy. He's not disgusting. And the text, the literal words of the text help us understand this. The, The passage literally reads, the Pharisee was astonished to see that he was not baptized before dinner. That is, Jesus' host was looking to see whether or not Jesus was going to pour water over his hands. So it's not as our Baptist friends would believe that Jesus was supposed to go out and plunge himself in a river. No, it's it's a word for some kind of ritual cleansing. And Jesus didn't do that. And his, his host is astonished at his behavior, at his, in his mind, Jesus's irreligious behavior, his unsanctified behavior. And Jesus responds by offering up some choice words to his religious opponents. In verses 39 to 44, Jesus says that the Pharisees are students of wickedness. And in verses 45 to 54, he says the lawyers, the seminary professors, are students of ignorance. Put more bluntly, they're students of filth on the one hand and students of stupidity on the other. Jesus first responds to the Pharisees. Now, it's really interesting, the background here, and the arguments about all of their ritual cleansings... 
The majority of Pharisees believed that the outside of a cup, that you could clean the outside of a cup, and that the outside of the cup would be clean without having to clean the inside. The minority report said, no, 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 no. You've got to clean the inside of the cup first before you could possibly clean the outside. Now, Jesus sides with the minority view here, but he does so in order to criticize them all. You're worried about keeping the cup clean, he says. Great. But if the cup is your life, then guess what? It is full of wickedness. People may look at you, they may look at the externals and think you are clean. But, verse 39, you are full of greed and wickedness. You are students of wickedness. Everything is clean, verse 41, if you follow God in your heart, if you give as alms those things that are within. But if you don't do that, then who cares? whether your hands are baptized or your body is baptized. You are concerned about the externals, Jesus says, but God looks at your heart. And the straight talking Jesus then gives three woes against the Pharisees. A woe is a lament. It's a kind of sorrowful sigh over someone's wrong. Or it's a curse. Or it's both. The first one, verse 42. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. Now, there's nothing about tithing rue in the Bible, but imagine how pompously self-righteous the Pharisees must have felt, calculating just how much they should give as an offering on the basis of what they grew in their garden. They're, they have their little garden herbs, but they're calculating how much they should tithe. I don't even think that the U.S. Internal Revenue Service is so zealous. And Jesus says, give me a break. Start caring about the big things of God. Start caring about justice. Start caring about the love of God. But straight talking, Jesus keeps going. Verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees. Why? Well, because you want everybody to notice you when God's people gather together. You think that getting man's approval, having the best seat in the synagogue, means that God looks on you with favor. But you're wrong. Again, verse 39, your, your heart is full of greed and wickedness. Finally, verse 44, woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Well, what in the world does Jesus mean here? You're an unmarked grave. People walk over you without knowing it. Numbers 19.16 says that if you touch a grave, you are unclean for seven days. And so you are excluded from the fellowship of God's people 
in worship. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you harm people who innocently associate with you. They don't know that you are keeping them from the worship of God. Well, let's give a modern day example. You don't get straight talking Jesus without straight talking Jay Bruce. Let's imagine that Jesus is invited to give a talk at an Episcopal church. He walks in drinking a Dr. Pepper and eating some beef jerky. Well, when he finishes his snack before the talk, he tosses the can and the wrapper in the trash. Well, Sally, the vicar, the one who invited him, comes over and says, Excuse me, Jesus, but small, simple lifestyle changes such as recycling and reducing your consumption of plastic and paper can make a difference worldwide. Now, you may think I'm joking, but I'm actually quoting from the Episcopal Church's website. <laughs> Sally continues, please, in the future, don't eat beef turkey. It offends the vegans. Well, how would Jesus respond? You recycle every can, and you eat only organic food. Fine. Great. But Episcopalians have participated in a prayerfully pro-choice interfaith worship service. Catherine Ragsdale was there. She's the lesbian Episcopal priest who infamously said, abortion is a blessing and our work is not done. You tithe mint and rue and every herb and you neglect justice and the love of God. You care more about where an empty Coke can goes than an unborn baby. And you're, you're very focused on recycling. But what about redemption in Christ Jesus? What about the death of Jesus, the Son of God, in the place of sinners? If you teach recycling but not repentance, where are you? Make no mistake, churches that focus on the externals wound and harm people. People are made even more unclean, even less prepared for the worship of the one true God. Now, at this point, in verse 45, one of the lawyers, now remember not attorneys as much as we would, some, some of us would like to think that Jesus is blasting the attorneys. Remember, these are Bible professors. At this point, one of the Bible professors, I imagine him kind of tugging Jesus uh, a little bit, uh, he, you know, tugging him on the sleeve. And he says, now, now, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And again, I imagine that the expectation is perhaps that Jesus would apologize. Oh, have I offended someone? I'm so very sorry. But straight talking, Jesus says, well, since you're going to be like that, since you're going to be like that, and he proceeds to blast the lawyers with some woes of their own. The Pharisees are students of wickedness. The lawyers, the Bible professors, are students of ignorance. First, look at verse 46. You load people with burdens hard to bear, 
and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. You Bible profs sure are good at heaping up on other people's stuff to do, even though you don't care about godly living yourself. Part of the Mishnah, the, uh, a record of, oil, of oral traditions from the Second Temple period, which is the period that Jesus is in, instructs people to observe the, the lawyer's interpretation, the scribal interpretation, over the law itself. One commentator on, on this passage in Luke explains the rationale. Here I'm reading. The reason is that if it was a serious matter to offend against the law, which was sometimes hard to understand, it was a much more serious matter to offend against the interpretation which the scribes thought made everything clear. Now, of course, this view is rubbish. First, the authority is in God's inspired word, not someone's thoughts about it. Second, the lawyers arrogantly think that their words are clear and easy to understand, but the Bible's words are too difficult. But that's a mistake. I am a philosophy professor. Academics do not write clearly. It's, an, it's not changed. And, so, and they are so ignorant to think that their words are clear, but the Bible's words are difficult. And finally, and this is where I think Jesus is really going after them, it makes things very easy for them, very easy for them, the professors, but difficult for other people. How is that so? Well, one commentator asks us to imagine a study Bible written by the Internal Revenue Service. Now, things will be very difficult for the everyday person trying to figure out what to do, to do right. They have the right desire, but it's just so confusing. But there will always be the experts who know all the loopholes and make it really easy for themselves. And, and this commentator, it's actually Wheaton College President Phil Riken, adds a contemporary application to this point. And it's worth quoting in full. We must not hold people to a standard that goes beyond the plain teaching of Scripture. This is one of the problems with the Roman Catholic Church. It raises human tradition to the level of divine truth. And, and that's why, you're not going to see this coming, but that's why we've got to talk about sausages. We've got to talk about sausages. It's an example I get from D.G. Hart. In 1522, at Christoph Froschauer's house in Zurich, some friends gathered together to eat meat, even though it, they were forbidden to do so because it was Lent. They thought, if it's not in the Bible, then we can do what we want. 
And so they did. And just eight years later, an early confession of four cities called the Tetrapolitan, that just means four city confession of 1530, actually has an entire chapter called, the title of the chapter is, Of the Choice of Meats. Now it's not that the Swiss like their sausages, though I imagine that they do. It's just that they cherished and respected the Bible's exclusive authority, and they cherished their own God-given freedom. But if you're making up rules from tradition that you yourself have declared are the exclusive interpreter, then it's easy for you to make things hard for others, but painless for yourself. And Jesus says, woe to you, woe to you. Now for a second woe to the lawyers, verses 47 to uh, 51. It begins with, woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. Now, these Bible profs in Jesus' day, they think that they're honoring God's prophets as their predecessors by erecting monuments to their memory. But in a way, they're also honoring themselves because they see themselves as the heirs to this prophetic tradition. But Jesus says in verse 48, you have more in common with the people who killed the prophets than with the prophets themselves. And it's not just an isolated instance. Jesus mentions the A to Z of prophets from Abel to Zechariah in verse 51. The murder of Abel by his brother Cain is recorded in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And the murder of the prophet Zechariah is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 24. Because the Jewish Bible actually begins with Genesis and ends with 2 Chronicles, it's as though Jesus is saying, religious folks have killed God's true prophets from Genesis to Revelation. And here's, it makes sense. Because people who set up a rival authority to the word of God will always oppose those who cling to the Bible alone. Now, they may remember things differently in later generations, but the written record shows what they did. There was a dedication. I just learned this this weekend because I wanted an example for this. But there was a dedication this, uh, this September, just a month ago. There was a dedication, the Piazza Martin Lutero, or... Martin Luther Square. It was dedicated this month in Rome. It's a decision taken by Rome City Hall, a spokesperson for the Vatican said, which is favorable to Catholics in that it's in line with the path of dialogue started with the Ecumenical Council. But of course, had Luther been in Rome in the 1520s, they would have burnt him. They certainly wouldn't have named a square after him. 
And if Luther were alive today, I think he would say, don't name a square after me. Instead, take up the Bible and read it and believe what it says. There's a third woe, verse 52. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Just as we saw that the Pharisees hurt the ignorant because the Pharisees are unmarked graves and people walk over them. So, so here the Bible profs hurt the ignorant in another way. One commentator actually suggests that the, the, the Jewish lawyers, these Jewish Bible profs, received an actual physical key that officially designated that they um, had learning. It was a symbol of their learning. If that's correct, then Jesus is basically telling them, you have a symbol of learning, but you do not have the learning itself. And you prevent people from learning too. You've got the doctrine. You've got the fancy credentials, Jesus is saying. And everybody thinks you know something. But then how come you're so ignorant? How come you don't know anything? And the answer is surprisingly straightforward. If you're loading burdens on other people and not caring about them yourselves, if you're clinging to your tradition and the interpretation of your tradition, you may have actually very little time to study the Bible. You'll know Scotus, Schleiermacher, and Schopenhauer, but not Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Jesus says, if your Bible prof doesn't know the Bible, then he's worse than a hypocrite. He's a fraud. He has the key to knowledge without knowledge itself. And it's bad enough, Jesus says, that you don't have knowledge. What's even worse is that you distract people from their early and fragile love of the scriptures turning their heads and their hearts to something else. Woe to you. Well, let me close um, by offering three quick points of application. First, Jesus wants to clean you up. He's in the business of making people clean. He wants to wash you thoroughly and make you squeaky clean. It won't be a self-help program it won't be a silent retreat somewhere. But God, the Holy Spirit, will do the work in His time and in His way. Jesus wants to make you clean. Second, Jesus wants to make you wise. He wants to make you wise. So diligently study the Bible. Carefully attend to its meaning. Don't make church history, the foundation of your Christian faith. Don't even make Christian theology the foundation of your faith. Don't make a Christian radio program or some Christian website the basis, the foundation, the focus of your faith. Make the Bible the focus of your careful, disciplined, diligent study. Some of us have studied things 
extremely well, very thoroughly. I could ask you a question about your job and you would knock it out of the park. Well, take that eagerness and dedication and take it to the Bible. Finally, anticipate opposition. Expect disagreement. The Pharisees and scribes did not respond to straight talking Jesus with just sorrowful repentance, with weeping and a tender heart. No, in verses 53 and 54, we see that they began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Like wild animals crouching out of sight, ready to leap on him, they hungrily waited, hungrily hoped that Jesus would trip up and they could say, gotcha. Why would they do that? Because they hated him. They hated him enough to see him crucified. So who's in the tradition of Abel to Zechariah? Is it the scribes and the Pharisees? No. It's the great and good Lord Jesus, the wisdom of God, sent to die for his people. Straight talking Jesus talked the talk. But straight talking Jesus also walked the walk all the way to the cross. And if we follow him and we tell people the uncomfortable truth, even the uncomfortable truth about ourselves, then we can expect opposition. Jesus certainly did. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you love us enough to send your Son, our Lord Jesus, to die for our sins and that you work faith in us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would receive the word that you have given us and be clean, that we would study your scriptures and be wise and that we would be courageous in the face of opposition, unafraid because you hold us in your righteous right hand and you will never let us go. Give us joy and hope in you. Amen.